you know, that old saying that we've all heard is, you know, we're in this together and nobody really knows what the right answer is. And there is no right answer, really. And it's just really trying to navigate and use the experience that you have to forecast and build your pathway forward. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Welcome to Digital Marketing Masters. I'm Matt Rouse, and today my guest is Deanna Palm, who is the president of the Hillsborough Chamber of Commerce. So Deanna is president of the Greater Hillsborough Area Chamber of Commerce, and she's been there since 2001. Combined with her tenure at the Portland Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce, Deanna has had more than 30 years of chamber experience. Deanna, how are you? I'm doing great, and I would add that so that obviously means I started when I was a very young child, right? Yeah, a long time ago. Yes. I didn't know you could start at the Portland Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce when you're under 10. Well, yeah, exactly. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate that. Yes. You and I were talking with uh, Brian Walsh earlier about where the cutoffs are for what they consider like at risk because they put everything into age groups, right? It's funny when they they say, well, you know, it's only old people who are affected. And if you ask somebody who's 50, they're like, they mean people who are 80. But if you ask somebody who's 20, they're like, they mean people over 40. <laughs> so true. It is so true. My daughter, who's like 22, is like, mom, you're the worry. You know, I, I don't want to make you sick because you're <laughs> a vulnerable right. group. And I'm like, uh, I'm not, though. I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> in our like, own mind. No, your grandpa is. I'm not. Right. That's right. Everybody's like one generation up is the people who are in trouble. Exactly. Exactly. We're going to talk a little bit more about the COVID stuff in a minute. But first, I wanted to ask you, what is the difference between a local chamber of commerce and a national chamber of commerce? Well, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is not our mothership. I'll just say that. We are a member of the U.S. Chamber. They provide resources. They're really focused on federal issues. Your chambers of commerce and your local communities are focused in their own backyards. So we spend a lot of time talking about our own businesses and working on issues that impact our own local businesses right here in Hillsborough. So really, the National Chamber is not going to worry about what our city council is doing. We will. And your like funding and stuff is all separate, right? Your membership? Completely separate. They, yes, we are our private not-for-profit organizations. And it's very confusing. A lot of folks do think, you know, they'll call me, why is the U.S. Chamber doing such and such? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, it's not up to us, right? But yeah, I don't know. And so, yeah, they are not, we are not required. They're not part of our charter. Completely separate individual organizations. Right. And then they also do like different political things and, and they're not always in sync with the goals of the local chamber. Correct. And I would say, you know, especially Oregon. Yeah, we have a lot different progressive ideals that aren't in alignment with what's happening at the federal level and what's happening, you know, in D.C. So, again, it's really nice for us to have we're our own identity and we don't have to send anything up to the hill, so to speak, to get approval. Right. My biggest hill is my board of directors and our membership. Do they like what we're doing? Do they approve what we're doing? And so, yeah, everything is really localized for us. So there's a lot of other, I mean, just local chamber of commerce, but there's also like Prosper Portland and there's the Portland Business Alliance and there's all these other organizations. What do you think makes the Hillsborough Chamber different from those other kind of local organizations? 
Well, I think the Portland Business Alliance is a great example, formerly known as the Portland Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce, where I worked for 18 years. So I can tell you that the Hillsborough Chamber cares a lot about the Hillsborough area. And you would have seen me before COVID-19 at every city council meeting I attended, went to work sessions, participated in dialogue with our mayor and our city council. We would show up and testify. We would weigh in. They would seek our opinion. There's nobody else in the room that's another business organization at those meetings. That's where we shine. We're the local advocate for our business community. And there's some folks that have a more regional perspective like Greater Portland Inc., which is basically a marketing arm. They work with economic development organizations to market outward, right, to to market opportunities for Oregon, to bring in business that comes into the region. But they don't care if we've got a a sewer bill that's going to go up and impact our businesses adversely. They would say, boy, you should call your Chamber of Commerce. I guess it is a lot about localization, right? And I think anybody who is a business owner that's that's kind of part of a larger metropolitan area, a lot of times you kind of get left out, right? If you're on, on the outskirts, right? Business decisions are made. And like I remember... Just recently, like Prosper Portland had their grant and they were like, we're going to have a grant program for the greater Portland area, blah, 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 blah. But then it was like, do you have a Portland address or not? Right. <laughs> right. right. Which, you know, especially when you get into parts like unincorporated Washington County and stuff like that, they kind of get left in the lurch a little bit sometimes. Right. Because they're not a Portland address. They're not a Beaverton. They're not a Hillsborough. They're kind of in, in the middle of nowhere. But then Washington County had their grant program. Which, of course, we found out from the Hillsborough Chamber of Commerce, right? Absolutely. Prosper Portland is really Portland's, the city of Portland's economic development agency. So it would be like our Hillsborough Economic Development Department issuing a grant and saying all comers, right? Folks that are local Hillsborough you know, businesses would say, excuse me. I'm the one paying taxes here, right? So it's, I mean, a lot of times if you don't know where the lines are, it's difficult to navigate necessarily who's responsible for what and who's doing what. And I think we all are, we're also a big region. So from a regional perspective, we all play a role as well. And the one of the things I would say about the Hillsborough Chamber is that because of just my tenure with the chamber and in chambers in general over 30 years, we do get invited to regional tables and we are participating in that dialogue and because we are, you know, the economic engine for the region and for the state, it's important what we care about and what we think about different issues. So we're invited to those conversations as well. Right. So when you say that we are the economic engine of the state, what does that mean? Are you talking about that from a like revenue output per capita kind of thing or is it? Oh, yeah. It's really about the number of high tech firms we have that have high valued products that are you know, contributing to our exporting, that are also contributing to our jobs, which contributes to the payroll and the income tax that's going into the state coffers. You know, really, really important part of the region and part of the state is what's happening right in our backyard. Right. I mean, I know that. So I'm from Canada and there's always been this huge argument in Canada that the western part of Canada has almost no population compared to like Toronto and Montreal and these places. But all of the tax dollars go in and only a tiny amount of the tax dollars come back. But the majority of the economic output is coming from the part that's, you know, where the tax dollars aren't going back to. Do you think something similar happens with Washington County? you know, versus the rest of the state, or is that? 
Well, I, I always try not to be too peevish about this because, you know, obviously it's important. I always, as a native Oregonian, I really care about the entire state. So if there are things that are that we can use to support economic development in other areas and more rural areas and making sure that we haven't got regulations or requirements in those areas that prohibit them from being successful, that's important to me, too. And, you know, quite honestly, it can't all come to Hillsborough. But yes, there is the sense that sometimes, you know, it's kind of a one way street with tax dollars and we're not getting back every bit that we're putting into it. But again, we also want to have a say about how it's being used. So that's important as well as if we can weigh in on different projects that are happening, happening on a regional basis or how transit is being delivered. You know, we want to make sure that we're at that table because we are, you know, contributing an outsized amount to those systems than we're actually getting in return. Right. And I think that kind of goes at every level. So you always want your neighbors to be doing well so that you can do as well as your neighbors, whether it's in your neighborhood, your city, your county, or even your state, right? Right. And I think we saw some of that with the COVID response with the partnership between like Washington and Oregon and and California, where they're like, well, we're all economically tied together and there's a lot of connection there. Well, and even, you know, how Oregon sent PPE to New York City, right? Because, again, as a nation, so it all just kind of funnels up, really. We care about local, but then we care about the region. We care about Washington County, but we care about the state. We all care about the nation as well. That's good. And I actually have an interview with a guy from New York next week. So I'm going to find out, kind of get the skinny on what's going on there. And earlier today, I just talked to a guy from Orlando and it's rough. They're starting to try to open up a little bit there, but they don't have the, I guess they didn't lock down as quickly or as much as they did here, but also they have a higher population density. So they're going to have more issues opening up. So let me ask you this. The chamber, because of your connection to local business, it seems, at least to me, that you guys kind of saw the writing on the wall before a lot of other parts of the state did. And you guys were talking to, you know, city officials, state officials, and, you know, places like the unemployment department and things like this saying, look, this is going to be a really big problem. Do you think that maybe they didn't heed the warning fast enough to help businesses? Oh, boy, that's a You know, I think hindsight is going to be better than 2020 in all of this. Don't you agree? And I think that certainly we've exposed a lot of vulnerabilities to the infrastructure that we have in our systems. And and we've been not wanting to have big government. So we've disinvested in some of those systems. And now this is an opportunity for us to take a look and say, okay, how do we right size some of these systems and make sure that we don't get in this situation? I mean, definitely, I think having a conversation with our businesses, um, I remember telling one business, he was like, I think we're going to have to shut down. And the one thing I said to him was like, I think unemployment is going to get slammed and the department's going to get slammed. If you think you're going to have to furlough your employees, do it sooner rather than later. And he came back to me and said, thank you, because as we know, I mean, there are people that have filed for unemployment in March and still have not received payment one. We've seen people six and seven weeks out with no check in their hand yet. Right. And so, you know, now we're what one, two, getting closer to three rent payments that 
they haven't had the, you know, the resources to make. And so this is a great lesson, like learning that our unemployment software was written on COBOL. I mean, I'm not sure whether half of your listeners are even going to know what I just said, right? Yeah, okay. It might as well be recorded on an eight track. <laughs> exactly. So that wasn't going to be helpful. And then the nuances to the unemployment system, which is, oh, you get an extra payment and over oh, lengthening the time and over oh, opening it up to, you know, sole proprietors and gig workers, people we have always been kind of not a part of that system. And then it's like, uh, how do we program that in? Right. We saw and felt and and I think just my experience with small businesses over the number of years, understanding that they aren't going to have six months of resources and savings. It's one or two months. Right. So when you're talking about closing down for that amount of time, one or two months is a stretch nowadays. It is a stretch, right? I mean, the economy has been so good for so long and companies, especially larger companies, who honestly should know better, have been leveraging themselves so close to their revenue, right, to try and squeeze every ounce of productivity out of their money, have left themselves. So back in the old days when it was still 19-something, I was taking accounting and bookkeeping in school, and one of the first things that, that always came up was retained earnings, right? You always have retained earnings for an emergency slush fund and all these kind of things. And I mean, that's almost unheard of in businesses nowadays, right? Unless they're very large businesses. And a lot of businesses, like local businesses, they don't have any real retained earnings, right? I mean, there's not a whole lot left at the end of the day. Yeah, they're, they're very slim profit margins, very slim profit margins. And yeah, so I mean, a lot of times you have businesses that, you know, aren't even paying themselves very well, right? And it's more of a, you know, I'm passionate about this business and I want it to succeed. And at some point in time, yeah, I can pay myself back for, you know, doing this. And then you have something like this that is, I mean, there's no playbook that somebody's going to pull off the shelf and say, yeah, what, what are we doing during this pandemic? You know, what's the pathway? Go get the pandemic plan, John. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> And, you know, that old saying that we've all heard is, you know, we're in this together and nobody really knows what the right answer is. And there is no right answer, really. And it's just really trying to navigate and use the experience that you have to forecast and build your pathway forward. And yes, difficult. Let me ask you this. Beyond just bars and restaurants, what other kinds of businesses have you seen that have been kind of hit the hardest? Oh, your small retail. You know, anybody that has a small shop that can't accommodate is not a standalone and they, you know, have a small team of people and they might have had customers going in and out throughout the day, you know, that they're not able to accommodate being open at all. So they've had to then take what might have been their weak link in their business model, which was their online presence and say, okay, now this is it. This is what needs to be the best part of my business. And, you know, some weren't prepared for that. And I mean, you can speak to that better than anybody in terms of how many phone calls I'm sure you got with, hey, I need help with my website, right? I have to increase my SEO. I've got to put a shopping cart on. So it's that pivoting to an area of which they had just kind of set aside because it wasn't a major part of their business. Well, I'll be honest, the amount of businesses that were ready from an e-commerce standpoint is very small locally. And the number that have reached out for help, I think is smaller than you would expect because they've already been hit so hard that they don't have the money to try and pay to get those things fixed. A lot of people are trying to kind of piece together their own solutions right now. 
which is fine. And that's why, you know, we have events and stuff like we had the other day where we're trying to help give businesses some solutions that are inexpensive or free that they can try and work on. I mean, there's lots of resources out there. You can get YouTube certified on pretty much anything nowadays. Not to say, you know, if you're a business and you have revenue and you want help kind of fixing that, you know, we'd be happy to help you. But I think it's more important to see process wise how those businesses can function. I mean, I know somebody who owns a small retail store, just like you were saying, who doesn't have any childcare now, right? So they can't go to their store. So even if they could sell things, they cannot go there to set up the shipping and do all that stuff because they have no childcare at home. Yeah, whatever they can do online and the curbside, if you have childcare issues, then it's difficult to try to manage that. But that is some of the shift I've seen. You know, even folks like Autobody, which have had to figure out ways that somebody can come in and get their car repaired, which is actually with everybody at home right now great time to get my car repaired or updated, you know, get that service call that I was that I needed to because I won't need my car. I'm not going to a meeting. Right. But then Autobody has had to try to figure out how do they, you know, make sure that everything comes to them and then back out in a very, very cleanliness and sanitary fashion, gloves on, handing the keys over, those kinds of things. So there's been pivots in different businesses that you wouldn't think about as well. I think pivoting the way that your business is done is a hell of a lot easier than trying to figure out how to start a new business because your business doesn't work anymore, right? Right. And Autobody is kind of a good example of a business that can do fairly minor changes to their process. You know, because generally auto body shops are set up in bays and each car is in a bay and there's one person working in a bay at a time. And then you put it in the paint room and the paint guy does that. You know, there's not it's not a whole lot of people working side by side like a meat packing plant or something. Right. Where everybody's shoulder to shoulder. And we've seen what happens, you know, in that from what's going on with like Tyson Foods and stuff right now. Huge, huge issues. And some severe vulnerabilities in the food system have been shown. You know, again, it's it's the same idea when you leverage down so much to having such a short period of time between, you know, in any system, the more you leverage the system, the easier it is to break. Right. Right. Yeah. The more tension, the tension, really. Yeah. You don't leave any slack in the system. Then there's no way to kind of make up for those problems. You know, another thing talking about business pivoting is is I've seen some pretty ingenious stuff, like some of the hotels in the area are having, like you can rent a room and use it as your office for the day instead of, you know, a normal rate hotel room for the night. I've seen lots of delivery, like restaurants delivering meal packs where you can cook it at home yourself, but it has everything pre-proportioned for you and, and all set up. Plus, you know, there's, there's always the things like... Grubhub and Uber Eats and all these places, which generally take a pretty big percentage out of the pocket of the restaurant. So usually it's better to go to the restaurant's website and order from there. I would agree with that. We've had businesses that have said, you know, we would like to do that, but we just can't afford to do that. You know, we can't raise our prices to accommodate for the cost of the service. The retail has also done things like bundling, right? Bundling gift packs, for certain age groups. If you're a toy store, I've seen toy stores do that. And again, for a parent who's got children at home that now we're going on, what, two months of that being at home 
pretty much solid teaching during the day and then entertaining, you know, at night. You're looking for something to help and respite for an hour to keep your child occupied so you can breathe, right? So that's my little plug for a Mother's Day kind of thing. If, you know, mothers are needing a break this month, really, right? Buy some toys for those kids. They can only watch A for Adley so many times. Right. Or if you want to get like coupons or something, you know, give them a free hour walk. Let them go for a walk for an hour and you'll take care of the kids and those kind of things. So let me tell you this. This saved us the largest amount of work time and quiet time out of everything that we've ever bought our child in our life. And it's headphones. Oh my gosh, really? Because she puts the headphones on and she'll watch your video or play a game or whatever, right, on the tablet or something. And sometimes she can go for like 30, 45 minutes and she's four. So, I mean, that's a lot of time for a four-year-old. That is. I know a lot of people are against screen time. If anybody's listened to any other podcast, they'll know that my goal is to maximize my child's screen time against everybody's <laughs> idea. I love it. Man, you know how much work you can get when you have like two people at home who both have jobs and you get 45 minutes of silence from your children? Oh my God, you just get so much done. That's how I wrote these questions that I'm asking you. <laughs> it's funny. I was talking to a parent the other day and they're like, so finally we just broke down and we just have this big snack barrel worth, you know, really not good for snacks for our kid. And it's like, just go get a snack out of the barrel, right? Just take one and go. And it's like, okay, right. you know, I've raised two kids of my own, but my kids are not home anymore. And I just can't even imagine doing, you know, online education with a child. And I know that I've talked to parents that are like, so what kind of math are they doing these days? Because I don't get it, right? And they're having to teach their kids. So this is a, yeah, it's a big deal, big changes for everybody. And if you happen to be one of those parents that are home, you know, trying to help your kid, and you're also a business owner, and you're thinking about how do I make it, right? That's a lot of stress. That's a lot coming down on top of you. And there's, there's a lot of kind of local business providers who can help you with things like stress. Like there's like Anchor Counseling with like Kara and Michelle Delude and has Destinations Hypnosis. They do like a de-stressing kind of theory. I think she's calling it virtual vacation now or it's like a over the computer, right? And Oh, I have to get one of those. Fantastic ways that you could de-stress a little bit. But of course, you got to be able to get the time away from the kids to do that. But Exactly. And this kind of brings up something because I know that there's some recommendations that have come out from the state about childcare as well as how, what the plan is to reopen. I know they released that yesterday. So, and that would have been May 7th, just so you know, because we release this later than we record it. I saw some of the recommendations that were sent out because I'm on the Small Business Executive Council with the chamber, right? So we got to kind of put in our, our two cents on those. And then you sent those in to the state. How successful do you think it was, the suggestions that we made on, on getting those actually into the plan? Well, some of them, I think, definitely helped. And again, these were recommendations, guidelines for different industries. So it was retail, restaurants, outdoor recreation, gyms are coming out later. Childcare will be finalized, I think, in a couple of weeks. And they were in draft form. And they went out um, to the entire region, actually, I'm sure statewide, through these um, governor's regional solutions task forces. So we sent them out to our members and most people that are in the industry that you're in. So if you're in the personal services industry and you happen to be, you know, a salon owner, 
you are going to have probably the same sort of recommendations that another salon owner has as well in terms of where are the problems, where are the issues. So things like we heard in the recommendations that each time you have a different client, they need a different cape and that you as a stylist need a different cape. And the response back was super expensive. And how necessary is that? And is there a different alternative than a cloth cape that you have to take off each time? And that means it has to be laundered. And how many you have, how many you're going to have to have an inventory, those kinds of things. And so, yes, I think that there were some of those things that we, you know, did some, we input and that were taken into consideration. The drafts came out based on a group of industry experts, folks that were in the industry. They sat down together. They came up with the draft. But I think it also was definitely an expectation of making sure that you you have the best opportunity to keep people safe and to keep them healthy and not make them sick. So that was sort of the baseline of how do we not how we do no harm in opening up, opening up. So the regulations in phase one for some of the industries are pretty rigid. Restaurants, I think it's a 50% capacity. I mean, I had one restaurant owner that sent me a note and said, so I can now seat currently where I could have seated 70 people. And under these regulations, I can seat 17. This doesn't make any sense for me, right? And that's not just 50% capacity, obviously, right? That's based on the, the space requirements. Right, right. Because of the fact, yes, you have to have six feet of distance between each one of the tables. You can't have more than a 10-person party. I mean, there's these are definitely recommendations that keep people safe as possible and still allow businesses to open. There are some businesses that are going to look at those guidelines and say, that doesn't make any sense for me to even try to open under phase one. I can't make that pencil. Small facilities, small restaurants, those kinds of things. Well, most restaurants are pretty low margin business to begin with. Right. Right. I mean, usually the scale of the amount you can turn over your tables is how you make money. Right. Like you got to serve people for 80 percent of the month at your regular capacity before a single dollar goes in your pocket. Correct. So if you can't have 80 percent of your people, you're not going to make any money. You're not going to make any money. And so if your model currently is, you know, takeout and delivery, you'll probably stick through that through phase one. So if we're all sitting back waiting, we can't wait till phase one starts and we go sit in a restaurant, your choices are probably going to be more limited than you would expect. But these are the kind of decisions that these businesses have to make to make sure that they can eventually open back up again and have a business and have a place for those that workforce to come back to. Well, I've seen some articles and stuff specifically in the bar and restaurant industry where they're saying what's going to happen when there's nothing left but chain stores, chain restaurants. And not that I'm not in any way disparaging someone who, you know, they own a franchise or whatever, or it's a large corporation full of restaurants. They're just as valid of a business as anybody else's business. But the problem is that these larger franchises and corporations are able to make policy and kind of get that push through for their businesses and their franchises to be able to deal with it better than a mom and pop shop or somebody who owns a little tavern where the idea was to try and get the most people in the smallest amount of space who can buy the most food or drinks. And that's how you make your money. Scale works, right? Scale works. And so in this case, it's a huge advantage. If you've got 
100 Subway sandwich shops. You figure out what the template is that works, that meets the recommendations, and it's copy and, and duplicate. Right. You roll it out to all of those shops and then maybe you can have the franchise owners pay you back later or give them a loan or something like that, which Bob's Tavern at the end of the street can't do that. Correct. And a lot of those single owner or small family owned restaurants and pubs, the majority of their profitable revenue came from lottery. And obviously you can't have people sit next to each other spinning the video lottery button when they're not allowed to sit next to each other. Right. And they did allow, you know, video lottery in phase one under the regulations. But again, social distancing. So you have to have them six feet apart. So if you had 10, do you have two? I mean, now all of a sudden it doesn't. And do you have them taken out? How do you? And you can't move them around. I mean, they're they're wired into the walls. Right. And they have to be wired in by the people who are approved to do that. Oregon lottery. Right. Right. Oregon Lottery has to do it. Also, you're not allowed to have them visible from the street or from a non like under 21 year old area. Right. So then what do you got to build a new wall around your building with a machine every six feet down the side of your. I mean, I get the idea of the regulations, but it also seems like no one is out there on behalf of the businesses that this is going to ruin saying, how are we going to figure out a way that we can make this work? And, you know, if it is literally just we can't make it work, then what is the plan for those people? Is your plan just sorry you're out of business? Because that seems in some cases what the plan is. Well, and I think that two things I wanted to mention about that. First of all, think about when you go to a different town and visit, right? You don't want to go to a restaurant that you have back home right? You want to go to the local flavor. You want to go to the local authentic, what gives me the vibe about this community, that local restaurant, right? So we need to have local restaurants and we need to figure out how to make sure that we can make them viable and and help them survive because it is difficult. Anybody that's ever opened and owned a restaurant would be a better testament for how difficult it is um, to make that work. But that is a key component of any community is having the ability to have your local flavor infused through your local retail, restaurants, whatever. That's an important part of your community. So that is Main Street America everywhere. But it's never the same. It's always different, which is why we love it so much. I think the America's Recovery Fund that the Chamber has signed on to and is hoping to support, which is part of the Small Business, Save Small Business Coalition, where that is the answer, Matt, is if you can't create regulations that everybody can figure out a way to prosper in, then you're either telling your, you know, your businesses, you know, sorry, goodbye, or we figure out a way to say, until you can, right? So until we get to the point where we can either have, you know, some sort of a immunization, vaccination, some sort of a, a treatment for it, and where you can say, we don't have to worry about this anymore. And then somebody that has never been able to meet those those regulations can come back to life. We have to be able to extend them a lifeline. And I think that creating 
something similar to the 9-11 fund is and that's what this is really modeled after the the america's recovery fund is modeled after that and we're really pushing for congress to really look at this and fund this in a way that's meaningful for our small businesses across the nation or we are going to be different and i don't think that different is something that we're going to stand for yeah it's not going to be different in a good way (laughs) no it's not no it's not so one thing that, you know, there's a there was a podcast that I listened to recently by Seth Godin that I believe the title was No One Should Go to Olive Garden in New York. Nothing against the Olive Garden, honestly, but he was just using it as an example. If there is a, a city like New York that has, I think it's something like 10,000 independently run restaurants, why do you need to go to the same restaurant that's in your town? Amen. Amen. Exactly what I was saying is that and that is I mean, that becomes then Hillsboro, like the flavor of Hillsboro. What is it that we have that's unique? And again, if I'm visiting a town in the community, I don't want to go where a place that I can go to back home. I want to go and see and experience, you know, what their flavor is, what that flavor of that community is. And can you imagine if we no longer have that opportunity? Yeah, there's some fantastic restaurants in Hillsboro. Just in greater Portland in general has a fantastic food scene and an independent food scene. And a lot of that is really in danger right now. I would agree. There's also also a fantastic bar, pub, brew pub scene here. And some of them are, are also really struggling. And not just struggling, some of them are just literally closed right now. Let me ask you this. I don't want to have too much doom and gloom. I mean, obviously, it's a hard time for those types of businesses. But... Because the Hillsborough Chamber does have a pretty tight-knit business community, so you have like the Ambassador Program, there's like the Small Business Executive Council, there's Hill Hub, there's like roundtables for different industries that you guys hold and probably some other things that I'm not even mentioning. Do you think that the reason that Hillsborough's businesses seem to be doing at least in most cases, a little bit better than kind of the national average? Do you think it's because of that tight-knit community that the Chamber has helped create here? You know, I'd love to take credit for that. Uh, however, I think it's a lot of different factors. I think that we have a really great city leadership. We have a great mayor, a great city council. We have a great economic development department, and we have a wonderful city manager. That's important, right? Because that really starts in terms of setting the tone for the community with our with our local government. And I just couldn't be more proud of them and the work that they've done. A million dollars in grants to outdoor small businesses, almost before anybody thought about that that would be a good idea, they were doing it. So really important. I think that we've always had just a, a great relationship with our with our government, our local government. And I think we've also, also had a great relationship with our business community. We have had a history of having really great leadership in our, in our city government. So really smart people. And we've had great mayors that have cared about our community. And, you know, we don't have the kind of any sort of disgruntled kind of attitude happening at a, at a public sector or elected official level. I think that's really, really important. And I think that has led to us being just more friendly, more caring, more wanting to, to be engaged together because we have a good time. Right. And we, we do not we're not fighting about stuff. And that's good. And that's what I think makes it why people want to come together, because it's not about fighting about stuff. It's about how do we get stuff done? Yeah, there's also a lot of kind of smaller organizations of groups here. I'll give you a good example. Just in my neighborhood, 
we have a little like HOA group, right? That's like on Facebook, but it's not for the HOA. It's it's for the residents so that they can all talk to each other. And people in the community are sewing masks and they're leaving them in our like little public little library or next to the mailboxes everywhere and they're just free. Isn't that, that's so cool. And so you can just go grab one if you need one. That's so cool. And nobody asked anyone to do it and nobody's getting paid for it, right? They're just helping each other out. And then a couple of the people in our neighborhood are teachers and they have been helping let everybody in the neighborhood know which schools have school lunch program delivery and what time it comes so that they can go get school lunches for their kids and for anybody who may be like food insecure right now because, you know, you lost your job or whatever and the food banks are getting overwhelmed, right? So that kind of stuff's important also. And then they even organized a thing where they're having crap. I can't remember the name of the food truck. What's the name of the food truck that has the... Is it Burroughs? The uh, shaved ice... Oh, I don't know that one. ...thing where you put the... Oh, anyways. Yeah, the snow cone truck is going to be out actually literally in front of my house an hour and 10 minutes from now, which is why I got to be out <laughs> within an hour. But yeah, so we're doing these things in our neighborhood and they're either at little to no cost to anyone, but they can help everybody. And that kind of community help and support is so important. I mean, it makes a huge difference. Can you imagine, you know, some of the households in our neighborhoods, both the parents lost their jobs and they don't have childcare and they have been six weeks waiting to get unemployment. And somebody says, here's a way you can go get lunches for you and your kids every day. Like that's a huge difference. Huge difference. Right. right. And I do think that, you know, there's uh, that is what. We call it the heart of Hillsboro, right? It's just that we have a big heart and we, you know, I'm sure that there are a lot of communities, you know, around this nation that are doing things that are like that as well. It's just really nice when you're living in a place where they are doing that and they're thinking about, I think, you know, about the hashtag Hillsboro Strong and, you know, really supporting small businesses and having small businesses feel like they've been supported and that and that they're important. Because I do know that because I talk to businesses all the time and you know, some of them are getting discouraged and they're feeling like nobody sees them and that they don't have an understanding of what they're going through. So I think that anytime we can reinforce the fact that we do know, we feel what you're going through and you're absolutely imperative to our quality of life, right? The quality of life we have in Hillsborough is because all of these things work together. You cannot have you know, the same quality of life and not have a strong small business community. It just will leave a gaping hole. And so we can't allow that to happen. There is another issue that kind of is, has, yeah, at least I haven't seen it discussed much anywhere. And that is the problem. I kind of call it the 9-11 flying problem. So after 9-11, yeah, there was a big drop in the stock market and there was other problems in the business community, but nobody expected that people were still like even six months to a year later, not going to get on a plane, right? It was a massive repercussion in the economy through the tourist economy was not wiped out, but it was severely dropped because people didn't want to get on airplanes. Right. And I think you're going to have a thing where people don't want to go to a public space that they feel may be crowded. They're not going to want to go to, you know, maybe a show or a movie theater or something like that. And that has an effect because people don't just like, 
if my wife and I are going to go out and we're going to have date night, we're not just going to drive straight to the place where we're going to have a show and straight home again, right? You know, you go out and you get dinner and then maybe you go to the show and then you go and have a drink after or something. Or if, you know, if we're doing something else, then we're going to go shopping. Well, we'll go to the market and then we'll stop at the store and then you got to go to the gas station and you got to do whatever, right? So you have all these things that you do. If there's a lot of people who are scared to go out, I mean, that's going to be a real problem. So I think making sure that people feel safe at your business is going to be super important, too. Well, it's interesting. I had a group of people the other day and I said, you know, just by show of hands, this is virtual. So being safe, not not bringing a group together. And I asked them, so phase one allows you to go in restaurant dining. So how many of you are going to go rush out the door and go sit at a restaurant? Only one or two hands, Matt. And I said, well, that's kind of a bellwether of what do we need to do? Because, yeah, it's not going to be what we think it's going to be. There'll be, I think, some pent up demand in some areas. I think that there are a lot of people that are like, if I don't get my hair cut, I'm going to commit Harry Carey. So I think that, you know, salons where I can see that you're touching my hair, you've got gloves, you've got a mask, I've got a mask. There's maybe five other people in the room with me. I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, I saw they're going to put up those plexiglass dividers in some of the salons between the chairs and stuff. Right. Businesses are going to, and I think it was you that said on websites, right, the, the thing you should do is be telling your customers how you're keeping them safe. Absolutely. You know, and I think that was wonderful advice, great advice, because that's absolutely what they need to do is they need to say, here's what we're doing. And they need the, to then demonstrate it. When the customer walks in, the customer has to walk in and they're going to assess the situation, right? So are employees wearing masks? Are there 15 people in a crowded space? Is there nobody that seems like they're watching out for how many people are coming through the door? Those are all to a small business like added expense and burden. However, this is a consumer confidence crisis. It's a complete crisis. And we have to slowly rebuild consumer confidence, right? We were at an all-time high with consumer confidence back the beginning of March. Remember that? We were talking about, so everybody keeps talking about the fact we're going to go into a recession. Uh, when do you think that's going to be, right? Boom. All of a sudden. Well, here's the thing. Every every guru on the internet says, "Oh, the crow, you know, it's been five years, so there's gonna be it's gonna be any day now." Well, that was five years ago, but you know they were right. Any day soon, right? <laughs> In February, could, I was listening to an economist, and he was talking about us all saying, "Gosh, I wonder when the recession's coming." And he was like, "There is no sign that a recession is coming," and he was pointing out all of these things. But the, he had this one little thing up in the corner, and he circled it, and it said, "But I don't know about this virus." I don't know about this way. And that was the beginning of February. So, you know, shocked. So I'm from another country, right, to begin with. And I've got some friends who live in some other countries. So in interviewing people on the podcast from other countries, and I started to see when early what was happening with some of them. And I was like, man, this is going to be, it's not going to be stoppable. It's going to be a big thing. I like, I didn't expect it to be as big as it was. But we at my company, we took a look at everything that we do and said, look, we need to trim all of the fat right now that we have. We need to get down to like, what is our core business? What are people going to be needing? How are we going to you know, make sure that we can keep supporting our clients? Right. And we weren't 100 percent right on those decisions, but at least we had a plan. Right. 
I was talking with somebody the other day and their business was almost 100% in person in February and their entire global leadership made the shift and said, look, we need to get this at least 90% online by the end of March. And then it hit, right? Because they had seen what's happening overseas. And when it hit, their business only dropped like a few percent. And had they kept that 100% in person, they would have been dead, right? I'm not saying like, oh, well, you didn't make a plan. It's tough to, you know, <laughs> it's, you need to make a plan now. I think if you're, if you're a restaurant or a bar or something, right, and you think it's going to go back to business as usual, you better change your thinking. It's just not going to happen. And you need to make some tough decisions fast. Absolutely. You know, even the cost of implementing the regulations, right, and getting PPE. So if you're a restaurant, now I've got to get all the face masks and gloves and, you know, gloves for some of my workers. I've got to get disposable flatware and things like that but I don't have any money, right? Right, and availability of those things, right? Right, exactly. Like if you're supposed to be getting certain types of, you know, maybe it's disinfectant to give to your customers a hand sanitizer and stuff like that, it, it may not even be available. And if it is available, it's going to be overpriced. And everybody yells price gouging. Well, the price gouging is because the demand is higher and the supply is low. So the price goes up. Basic economics. It's just the way that the world works. Yeah, it's basic economics. But what nobody talks about is once the price starts to increase, then the supply starts to increase because people can use the money to convert their business to make that thing, right? How many businesses right now out there were printing t-shirts last week and are printing masks now, Absolutely. right? They just made the turn and said, look, oh, you know what? I couldn't do it when it was 53 cents to buy a PPE mask, right? But now that I can sell a custom printed mask for 9 to $12, there's margin in it. And then the suppliers can make it because there's margin in that. And so, you know, that, that price increase can, can drive an increase in availability. But like you said, if you're a business owner and you've got no money because your business has gone broke, you know, maybe you have gotten a PPP loan or something to give you, what, 60 to 90 days of revenue. Well, and also keep in mind that 75% of that had to be spent on payroll. You got 25% of resource, right, to utilize for things like utilities and, you know, those kinds of things. Or you've got yourself a 1% loan. And you just take it as a 1% loan and don't try to figure out how to adhere to the guidelines to make it forgivable. A 1% loan is great, honestly. Pretty good money. It's pretty good money. It's good money. Yeah. Like even if nothing had ever happened and everything was the way it was before and somebody said, hey, I'll loan you X amount of dollars at 1%. I don't care how much it is. I'll take it. And you, can, you don't have to start paying back $1 till six months, right? So I can build those payments over the next six months. And then now I'm set. Now I've got a bit of a savings to pay you off. And I've also got good money in, my, in the bank. So I know that there are businesses that have done that as well. doesn't make sense for them to try to bring back a workforce though they don't have any work for them. Right. And, and people on the, you know, that are on unemployment or especially hourly workers are not that eager to come back to a job where there's no work, no tips and less money. Right. And less money because there's, you know, the extra money that they're getting on unemployment on top of what they're making already. So why go back to work and risk your life when you can make more money sitting at home? 
Right. However, I would say that there is a cliff to that, right? 26 weeks, unless they extend it. And how many millions of people that I hear are out of a job? So before you give up that job, be thinking about what that's going to look like in the middle of July if Congress doesn't take any further action, right? You're swimming with a big pool of fish out there. So when I made my first kind of digital products, like I was, I was working on a website and I mean, this goes way back. I mean, we're talking the early, early 90s. I did that because I got laid off from my job at a restaurant that closed and they had a retraining program. So I took a retraining program to take bookkeeping at school. And while I did that, I built a business. There you go. Right. Because I was getting paid. So if you're getting paid right now, now is a fantastic time. If you want to switch careers, you want to start a business. I mean, a lot of people are like, now is the worst possible time to start a business. But it turns out if you look back, all the things that, that I shouldn't say all the things, but a lot of the companies that become really popular later were started in the recession. And a lot of people with careers that started in the recession. Perfect example is, and and you know this one well, I was talking to Darcy Edwards just a few months ago, and she had started her real estate business during the dive in the mortgage market. Yes. Yes. Smart. Those are. And I think to your point, I mean, that's a great example of, you know, if you are sitting home, because think about, you know, not not every business is going to make it right. So there might be space available that's going to cost you less to get into. And if you've got something, you know, ready to roll and potentially could roll it out, it could be the smartest thing you ever did. Right. And you could level up your skills now while you have the time. Because I don't know about you, but every single person that I know has a phone in their pocket and every single one of them has access to learn any piece of information on the entire planet anytime that they want. Well, and the other thing is just thinking about what are we going to need a lot of contact tracers, right? So you're thinking about, is that a career for you? We're going to need a lot of them. So what is a contact tracer? So it's somebody that if someone tests positive for COVID-19, then the contact tracer then works with that person to find out everyone who might have come in contact with that person and then goes back and contacts them and lets them know that they've been exposed and lets them know that they need to be quarantined. And so there's some healthcare requirements in there, but there's also empathy, thinking about the fact you're telling somebody that, you know, they have to go into quarantine for 14 days. And but we're going to hire a lot of these folks. They're going to have to be trained. And of course, you know, if you look at the gating issues for counties and this and the state opening up, there's one of the gating issues issues is making sure you have enough contact tracers ready and able to start that, you know, before you're going to go into phase one. So if you're interested in a career in contact tracing, which my guess is it's going to be with us for a while, raise your hand because that's could be a very, very lucrative and good career for you. Right. Also, you know, pretty much anything in the digital delivery space, delivery drivers, truck drivers, obviously, man, the plexiglass world is blowing up. If you can get a job at anywhere that has anything to do with plastics and plexiglass masks, obviously anything to do with PPE. There's also and, you know, I kind of wanted to hit on this earlier, but I kind of skipped over it. And that was, you know, if your business right now as a restaurant and you're like doing curbside delivery and stuff like that, you need to understand that you're still going to be doing that next year. 
Like it's not going to be four weeks from now and you're everybody's sitting in chairs again and just like the old times, right? So you better start setting up your business to be able to do that. Another thing, and this is one I thought about and thank God my wife Carrie knows that I'm always trying to do too much and, and, and kind of gave me the idea that maybe I shouldn't do this, but opening up delivery only restaurant because you can use kitchen rental space. You don't need a front of the house anymore. You can just do delivery. I mean, you could open up more than one restaurant out of the same restaurant, right? Because each delivery restaurant can have its own name and its own menu. And you can get some kind of synergies there where maybe you and another restaurant could could both work out of the same kitchen if you have offset schedules for food delivery or if you have similar ingredients and then you get some economy of scale when you do that, right? If you guys can have better buying power. There's all kinds of things that can come out of what is a tragedy for your business now. If you really think those things through, what's going to be happening and and what's coming up, I mean, man, there is going to be some fortunes made, honestly. Unfortunately, a lot of businesses are going to die. I mean, they just are. I hope not. Well, of course we hope not, right? But I would agree that I think some are not going to be able to make it because to your point, I had an elected official say the other day, you know, we're not talking 30 days. We're not talking, you know, 30 weeks. We're talking 30 months. 30 months before you start to feel as though you're back to where close to what would be normalcy. And, you know, I think that may actually even be a bit short sighted on that. Anything is going to go back to the way it was before. I don't think it's going to happen. Every time that there's a big shakeup, it becomes a different place than it was before. I mean, people in the 80s couldn't imagine putting their hands up in the air and having a machine swirl around them as a scanner with their shoes off at the airport. Like, it was just like, oh, my God, why would I take my shoes off at the airport? You know, like, it just absolutely wouldn't happen, right? I was talking with my executive committee this morning about transportation infrastructure, right? And thinking about if you have folks that have now worked from home and our business is going to start thinking about you know, they've been productive. Things are working. Do I need this big office building? Are folks going to say, I don't I don't know why I need to get on the road and the congestion that, that's caused by that? What about our transit system, right? If you have more people working from home, how do you rethink our transit system? How do you rethink our transportation system? Where do we, you know, need resources? What should we be building as an infrastructure based on the fact that there? I, th- I believe there will be more people that will be working from home? Absolutely. There's going to be more work from home. I think the increase in at-home work is going to be hundreds of percent. I agree. Out of the total workforce, it was only like, I don't even think it was 10% before. And it's probably going to be more like 40 or 50. And a lot of it's trust of the trust of the employers, right? You know, you were kind of forced to trust that your employees are going to be doing something at home, right? And now they're like, well, they're actually even more productive. There's also a bunch of tools and stuff that have come out around that as at-home workforces and distributed workforces have kind of risen over the last several years. You know, like our company has been 100% remote for six years, right? You know, with the exception of at Hill Hub, where I am right now, <laughs> you know, we we tried having an office once for six months and three months into it, I'd realized that nobody had been there for 45 days. It was just pointless, right? And I think that you, you raised a couple of really good points there, though. One of them is what is going to happen 
to all this office space, right? Like everybody had been talking about the retail apocalypse, right? All the shopping malls and stuff are going empty and you've got main streets with half the stores are empty and stuff like that. You know, what's going to happen now if there's like an office space apocalypse, right? I don't know. It's I, Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's, you know, seeing what comes out of this, but I agree. I mean, I do think that, you know, it's going back to normal. It's, you know, getting to a new normal where we are not feeling like the physical distancing maybe has gone away because we've now found, a, you know, a vaccination. And so we're starting to adjust to that new normal, but it won't be the same. I think it's Governor Cuomo that keeps talking about, you know, different parts of his state that have had disasters and that they came out better because they took the lessons that they learned and they applied them in the recovery effort. And I think we're going to do the same thing. I think we're we're going to take the lessons that we learned and we're going to apply them in the recovery phase of this. And, you know, if it's that small businesses learned, you know, need to learn to, to be better capitalized and to have better savings accounts or to understand maybe a different business model that is stronger in one area. Like if you're, if it's been really weak and online, now you know that, you know, what if my entire business is dependent upon being online? It better be hot. And there's people very sensitive now. And I don't think this is going to stop pretty much ever at this point. I think the new normal is people being sensitive to the possibility that there can be disasters because a lot of people always saw disasters as something that happens to other people. Exactly. It's there's a flood over there somewhere and there's like a tornado hits the same place somewhere on the other part of the country or whatever. Right. Or even if you're in a place where there's a tornado, you're like, oh, I don't want to go over there. That's where all the floods are, the earthquakes, you know. But now there can be worldwide epidemics or other problems. And I think people are going to be more sensitive to that. I think a lot of protectionist industry is going to rise from that. There's all kinds of things that people are becoming aware of and just saying, well, we only got to be like this until a vaccine comes out. I mean, there's literally thousands of other animal born flus that haven't transferred to people and any one of them could transfer at any minute. Right. So maybe we need to have some more preparation in place. Also, I mean, your business model needs to be able to flex with those problems. And I don't know what the solution to those things are yet, but it's it's something that you need to be thinking about as a business, as you know, as an organization. And I think, you know, going with your local chamber of commerce, making sure that you have them there on your behalf, going out and talking to those entities like the city or the county or the state on your behalf to help make regulation that can keep your business working. I know a lot of people think, oh, well, I pay my few hundred bucks to join the chamber and then, you know, I just get a couple networking events or something. But that's absolutely not where the value is, right? The value is them going to bat for you when something like this happens. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. You're welcome. I appreciate all everything that you guys have done for business here. And, you know, all the chambers who are doing all this hard work everywhere, not just for businesses, but for businesses and for nonprofits and for the people who are employees of those businesses and the school to work programs and all of this stuff, right, is all stuff that the, you know, local chambers do. And it's vital that you have that voice, right? And it's also vital that you take a look at your business and see what's going to come down the pipe and do not get caught into the thinking that somebody's going to come out with a vaccine and they're going to stick a needle in in somehow in 7 billion people's arms and and suddenly it's going to be everybody's going to be coming to your restaurant again. And it's just not going to happen, right? So you need to think about what is actually going to happen. 
and just try to do your best to figure out a path to that and a great way to kind of go to your chamber or networking group and talk with other business owners and see what they're talking about and you can get some ideas and, and you know, maybe pivot and help your business. Yeah, I have one more question for you. I know we're a bit over time already. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you think would be important for business owners to know? No, I mean, you did a great job and I think you covered a lot of different areas. I think that certainly it's remain strong and stay together. And I think your point of networking and talking and asking questions and don't be afraid to ask for help and raise your hand and say, I don't know, I don't get this. I can't, I don't understand what this means by this. And we may not have the answers, but we know who does. So be sure and just ask us anything that you need help with and we will find out, we will get you the help and support that you need and we'll come back together. I know this. Absolutely. And, you know, I wanted to kind of add one more quick point on the end of that, which is a lot of the business community that may be like underserved communities, maybe people who don't have English as a first language and have a hard time understanding regulation. A lot of times your chamber of commerce can point you in the direction of somebody who may be a native speaker in your language who can translate those things for you or people that can help you. You know, if it's I know like one thing that you had talked about before was that that outside of English and Spanish, if you spoke another language, it was almost impossible to figure out the paperwork to get, you know, loans or grants. And even sometimes if, if it's Spanish, sometimes a lot of times people are still not translating in, in Spanish. And so that... Or it's a machine translation and not... Correct. An actual translation, yeah. Right. Talk to your local Chamber of Commerce. Deanna Palm from the Hillsborough Chamber of Commerce. Thank you so much for being on. It's great to talk to you and talk to you again soon. Thank you, Matt. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Now stay tuned for a preview of our next episode of Digital Marketing Masters. Please join us again next week as we talk about video marketing with Alex Miner of IM Media. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.